and welcome to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. I'm Luke Nichols here at ED's headquarters in Leafy East Grinstead in West Sussex. In this week's edition, we visit an interface showroom to discuss how to take green business performance onto the next level with carpet tile manufacturers sustainability and innovation figureheads. We make a big goal and we, we don't have all the answers. And the only way that we can start finding those answers is by looking at who we need to talk to, who we need to get around the table to help us tackle these new issues and come up with the solutions that will get us to our goal. And we bring you another sustainability skills segment with Whitbread's CSR director giving us his tips on how to communicate your CSR strategy to both internal and external stakeholders. You know from your sustainability perspective that you're doing the right thing in terms of reducing the energy impact of the business to help mitigate the impact of climate change. But you'd never say that within the boardroom. You would say say we're doing this because it makes our business a leaner operation we save this the ROI is this etc 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 it's almost modifying the way that you say it to sort of achieve the same outcome okay yes so it's the 11th of August 2016 welcome to this week's edition of sustainable business covered I'm joined here in our makeshift podcast studio as ever by ED's senior reporter Matt Mace and our long lost reporter George Ogilby who's finally decided to show up for work after a two-week Holiday. How was it, George? Yeah, it was very good. I uh, swanned off to sunny Sicily for a couple of weeks. Uh, for it's fair to say, a much needed break after a very busy couple of months. Mm. Um, you go to Mount Etna. I did. Did I, you? I, I climbed Mount Etna. Was, did you really? You went up all the way to the top. Uh, well, yeah, with the help of a cable car and a jeep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I still made it to the top, nonetheless. There's also what's the other place in? There's like. Um, the Valley of the is it Valley of the Temples? Did you go to a place called I Valley? Can't of the say I went to there. Yeah, it's a really nice. It's, I'm pretty sure it's Sicily. I'm going to sound stupid if it's not. But there's a place called Valley of the Temples. I think it's like a really old Greek site out there, which I've always wanted to go to. But you didn't go there, so um, anyway, we digress. So um, while you've been away, topping up your tan, George, uh, Matt, and myself, and our new reporter Alex, who will introduce this podcast very soon, we've had our heads buried somewhat in the green economy um, here, and it's been a big two weeks of traffic for us over the past couple of weeks don't want to you know i don't want to put the two and two together george but since you've been away we've had a bit of a traffic spike <laughs> to call us the ogilvy bounce or something but yeah so i mean that, i suppose that did happen while i was away thinking back then when, um i was away and then that news broke about deck wasn't it deck mm. being abolished um but to be fair it is because there's been a few stories and events that we've been able to jump on and put a bit of a, a green business spin on i think I mean, were you reading ED while you were away, George? I certainly did. As I yeah. said, it seemed to be uh, very much a coffee cup frenzy over the last <laughs> yeah. couple of weeks or so. Surprised you were tuning in all the way in Sicily. But yeah, coffee cups were, were on the agenda. Um, so obviously, Hughes War on Waste took place a couple of weeks ago now. Um, big spike in traffic for us. Um, we got a nice exclusive from Costa from that. What else was there, Matt? There was... Well, we've... Um... We've had, I suppose, a, a second aspect of war waste not covered by Hugh, but the the carry bags data has come in, mm-hmm. kind of sounds a bit anniversary. Boring. Yeah, it's it, it boring initially, but actually, yeah, the data was really fascinating, wasn't it? Um, digging into it and finding out the differences and approaches from various retailers. You've been out on the hunt for Pokemon. I I have yes, um, and for sustainability related Pokemon stories as well, and just kind of new kind of digital trends as well. That kind of. Pokemon Go story has allowed me to chat to Nimba mm-hmm. about about the, um, not only kind of this sharing economy social movement, but also what they're doing now that Amazon's kind of entering their turf. But also, um, you know, Virgin and Heineken have both launched new kind of digital initiatives, and it's kind of this move towards a more kind of 
engage in CSR approach. Mm. Yeah, that was fascinating, Matt. The, um, we've got a nice picture, which I haven't tweeted out yet, of you wearing your Google goggles or whatever they're called, the car- yeah. Google cardboard. It, it says something when you you get kind of flunked by a piece of cardboard. You know, <laughs> I can I can just about handle laptops, but when a piece of cardboard comes away, I, I don't know what I'm doing with it. Yeah, I'll make sure to tweet that after this episode, actually. Um, yeah, so those are a few of the stories. I suppose we haven't mentioned Hinkley Point, obviously a big kind of national news story. That's been covered, I suppose, more extensively and closely by our sister title Utility Week. Should we be introducing some sort of bong in between announcing these? Bong. Uh, we've got the Olympics, obviously, taking place. Um, I mean, we've looked at how sustainable that event is in itself and then uh, at more in-depth at how it's raised awareness of global climate issues. So those are some of the stories we've been covering here over the past couple of weeks. Um, but for this podcast ev- episode, and that was quite a long introduction into this episode, but we've uh, we've gone out and grabbed some great exclusive interviews for you. So, um, I mean, I say we, but this episode should really be called the Sustainable Business Covered by Matt Mace podcast, because Matt's been the one actually getting out and about at various events uh, and interviews, haven't you, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it's it's all in the in the quest for Pokemon, really. Anyway, to <laughs> get me out of the office, you know, I think I've used up these Grinstead's resources in that aspect. But um, no, yeah, we've we've had a... A few, a few invites by, by a few companies who we cover a lot and are kind of leading the way on this. Um, so I was invited to a, a little kind of event hosted by uh, Interface, mm-hmm. kind of cutting the fluff from sustainability. And um, I suppose it was it was quite interesting, the comparison between what they're kind of saying about promoting sustainability to consumers to these new kind of digital waves from Heineken and, and USA, mm-hmm. you know, Interface are very much on course with their climate take back this huge big initiative they want to push about you know turning uh, factories into forests, um, which obviously isn't the actual actual aim, <laughs> but it, that's, I suppose that's the fluff of that yeah, piece. Yeah. Um, but they were getting right to the core about shifting paradigms from kind of beauty pageant CSR stories to literally creating sectors that are disrupted by what you're introducing. Mm-hmm. And whereas um, Heineken and, and Virgin are kind of going down this let's get consumers on board first route as well so it's a nice little it's a nice little comparison between two different ways of, of preaching sustainability mm. and we were so we were invited along to a because i remember ramon arashia their global sustainability director tweeted us didn't he mm-hmm. i think it was quite last minute because there was an event taking place a couple of days from that tweet and what was the event again it was it was, it was um cutting the fluff it was at, the, at, at their showroom in uh, in london uh, probably about 30 40 people there and Cracking spread for lunch, I will. I will say, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that was the, the real setting point for me. Nice. Um, but uh, and yeah, he kind of he kind of talked delegates through um, through just how how interface have moved from the basic paradigm of this of this storytelling to a to a more radical paradigm where he envisions a lot of companies going to in the future. Okay, so you spoke to Ramon and you spoke to one other. I also managed to grab John Koo, who was kind of lurking in the background. And he was <laughs> just lurking <laughs> in the background. Um, he was more than willing to talk. He, he's spoken at our events in the past and he's, mm-hmm. he's really, really good at getting that message home about talking sustainability to people who perhaps aren't necessarily that in tune with it. Okay, all right, well, let's start there then and we'll, we'll run the John Koo interview, uh, follow that straight on with the Ramon Arashia interview. Here they both are in full. I'm here in London today um, at the Interface showroom. Um, we've just had a presentation on kind of cutting the fluff from sustainability and I've been rather fortunate in bumping into um, Interface's co-innovation partner, John Koo. John, thank you very much for agreeing to chat to me today. Pleasure. 
So I thought I'd just start it off. Uh, Ramon is busy speaking away, so I've, I've taken this chance and, and pulled you to one side to just chat to you about kind of innovating that interface. Um, it's, been a, it's been a big, big part of, of the company growth. So when, when you kind of begin this innovation platform, how do the conversations go and what do you have to look out for when you're starting it? I think the one thing with interface, whether it's Mission Zero or, or our new work around climate take-back, is we make a big goal and we, we don't have all the answers. And the only way that we can start finding those answers is by looking at what we know, but also looking at the gaps and looking at who we need to talk to, who we need to get around the table to help us tackle these new issues and come up with the solutions that will get us to our goal. And you mentioned, you know, getting the people around the table. Interface has got a a pretty kind of almost illustrious history when it comes to innovating. You've had some pioneering people kind of leading the way. Um, How much is uh, the right environment, you know, vital, not just for getting these innovation discussions in the boardroom, but then pushing innovation into markets? And also, what do you look for when you're pushing innovation into a market? How does that market have to supplement the growth? Oh, so if I, I mean, if we go back to Mission Zero... It was by working with people such as Janine Benyus and and Paul Hawken, um, so renowned scientists um, that were kind of unusual suspects that allowed us to innovate because they gave us the kind of ability to explore new areas, think differently, take the challenge from a different approach. Um, And I think for us, whatever problem we've looked at, it's been about having that openness, that permission to innovate, that permission to challenge what we've done in the past. So, for example, with our fishing net project networks, um, which sees us as a carpet tile manufacturer work with the Zoological Society of London, that actually came from the question of what, what could a, a carpet tile company do to attack poverty? I mean, that, that's pretty random as a, a set. And that ability to get everyone around the table to look at how, that, how tackling poverty and inequality would also fit with our supply chain using recycled materials, how we could look at working long-term on a sustainable business model that would be one that worked long-term for communities and the environment. And that's where we see the Zoological Society of London coming in. That's, so it's that platform to have that openness. The other side to that is that you have to show a business benefit, and that's really what validates your permission to innovate around sustainability. You need to be able to show to your finance directors and to your board that there's potential whether it's medium term or long term you have to prove um, your business case for sustainability and um, I remember you speaking at uh, an ED event I think it was late last year and you we were kind of it was on the discussion of of talking to the boardroom actually you mentioned you know the whole empathy is is a superpower I believe was the word you said it was a, a way to kind of get people who perhaps don't have the the right kind of terminology about certain aspects you might be talking to scientists one week and then finance people the other um so in terms of speaking innovations to people where you are taking these radical concepts how how is it how do the conversations typically go what if you were if you were to give advice to someone who wants to push an innovation when they go into that conversation what would you tell them to to do and know i love the fact that people are listening to what i said in the past so thank you very much and and yes empathy is a is a real superpower and i I mean, really, it's about listening. It's about creating a platform where people are going to listen to diverse opinions, but also that people are not just going to nod their heads, but they're going to engage with them. I mean, my tip would be never to go in with a preconceived um, view on outcomes. Go in with an agenda that keeps it open enough, that keeps um, the right amount of space that you can explore the issues properly, you can explore the issues without fear of any criticism or concerns that might be traditional from where you're coming from 
and, and through that, that's where the interesting discussions happen. Often that tends to be where the conflict is, where you see things very differently. If you can hear and understand someone else's position, express your own, and find what the middle ground is between the two, that's when you start finding really innovative answers and, and really starting to collaborate as well, rather than just saying what you think should be happening. In terms of once you've had these open conversations, once the idea's on the table... Like you said, there, there has to be the business case there. So what kind of benefits has, has Interface seen over the years as their kind of innovation platform has grown? I know, I know for instance, we've, we've published an article about how employability is people are looking to come to you because you are a leader in this movement. So making the business case, it, it's easy in hindsight because you have the track record. But for someone who is perhaps looking at innovation still as a side piece, what kind of benefits can you list to them to think actually innovation is a fundamental aspect of sustainability? I'll give you two examples, one internal for us as a company and one more external about how we work with the guys, or our customers and clients. Internally, a lot of people have come to work at Interface because of our reputation for sustainability, wanting to be part of the journey to Mission Zero and beyond, wanting to play their the role and knowing that they're going to get the chance to play their role um, by coming into interface and especially I mean people a lot of people talk about millennials and looking for purpose and I think that's the manifestation of this that desire to go and work for a company where you know you can make a difference one thing it's key on millennials though it's it's not an age bracket it's a way of thinking it's one for your HR lawyers out there um, externally I'd say the conversations we have with our customers are raised to a new level so for example, some of our customers actually invite us in as kind of sustainability consultants and partners to work on their sustainability plans. Hey, we're a modular carpet tile company that's used to a transaction selling to them, but suddenly we've become a strategic partner around sustainability, which is a much better place to be, um, be as, a, as a company because it means the conversations you have are much more enriched. Um, it does benefit our sales, but also benefits our culture too as we really start to understand our customers and where they're going on their journey and um the concept of innovation is is something of you know it's hard work because there's a lot of risks attached to it you're you're working a lot of the time with either suppliers or you're working with ideas that are yet to take off the ground there's a there's a real leap of faith you have to take in an element of trust um uh, our readers, we've done a four-piece um, series on on kind of the, the legal necessities and know-how the innovators have to get around. In terms of the kind of big corporate that's willing to back these innovations and work them, what are kind of some of the obstacles that you will constantly have to overtake to make sure that an innovation is, is better than an idea and deserves being explored further? I think there's a few. I think, for me, the most important thing is that, that willingness to accept failure and to learn from your mistakes. A lot of things we've done from Interface have started as prototypes that haven't necessarily worked how we wanted, thought worked out how we thought they would, but over time have, have because we've learned from them, we've restructured, we've reworked and, and seen a benefit from them. Um, another side to that is you do need to think about your legal agreements and how you set up. So having the right terms of reference, um, having the right kind of advice and approach around innovating having a strategy to innovate is is kind of key um, these things don't happen um just you don't pluck great ideas and they don't happen out of the air you have to have the right structures processes um to facilitate and enable and empower okay and um i'm worried the fact that um the kind of lunch spreads get in uh, getting put away so just one more question before you go obviously you're someone who's got your eye on innovation it's, it's kind of your job role um personally what kind of aspects are exciting you maybe at interface or maybe just the like, innovation sphere at whole is there something you're looking looking at and thinking oh this could be a, a game changer for a certain sector i mean if we look at 
COP21 in Paris, the key thing on our agenda is climate change. And within that, the key thing is carbon. And what I'm excited to see is companies actually making a commitment and then following up with actual actual steps, programs, um, partnerships and collaborations to kind of start tackling this issue. We've got a hell of a long way to go on tackling climate change. But I'm so happy to see that talk becoming more walk. And hopefully we'll see more of that because we have to in terms of the world we're living in today. Well, John, uh, thank you very much for your time, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. So, again, um, I've just finished a chat with John Koo, and uh, Ramon has kindly uh, given me a little bit of his time just to ask a few questions. He's just done a really um, in-depth speech to Deluxe on kind of cutting the fluff out of sustainability. So, Ramon, uh, thank you very much for agreeing to join. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, just to get our, our kind of listeners recap we will be running a, a story on the site which i'm sure they would have uh, read by now but uh you mentioned in the speech these kind of three paradigms the almost operational models for companies and how they view their kind of uh, sustainability agendas you've got the the old model the new one and the radical so if you could just start by giving a brief overview of what these models are but more importantly how do companies begin to move from one model to another yeah so one of the things i've seen is that um most of the companies, they operate still in what I call the, the, the basic paradigm, which is the corporate sustainability paradigm, where they try to identify what are their environmental impacts of their company at company level, and then try to be a little bit less bad. So at the end of the day, it's a beauty contest of who has the best CSR report or who has the best awards. And it's just trying to identify those impacts and having good stories about managing those impacts. And um, a better paradigm is to really focus on the impacts of their products. Because when you look at the real impacts of companies, it's not the impact in their operations is the impact that their products have in people's life. Whether it is in the supply chain and the people's lives of working in the supply chain or people using their products. And if you take a uh, something physical like a carpet or a kilogram of cement, most of the impact would be related to their supply chain. And if you take something like an energy using product like a car or a vacuum cleaner, the impact is going to be of, of the energy while using those products. And it's, it's about product design, the second paradigm. It's about focusing on the real product. And then the third paradigm is about the, a, a wider uh, service paradigm. It's about, let's, for example, not this, if we pick the car industry, let's not just look at the impact of a car. Let's look at the impact of the transport system of a city, and then maybe you don't need cars. Maybe you have another solution or another service or another idea that solves, uh, solves the impact at city level. And um, it's, a, it's, it's an impact where it's about disruption, it's about new business models, new ideas, new products, disrupting the old business models, which I think is, is a much more interesting way of, um, of, of, of getting to, to a sustainable world. It's a, it's a much faster way. And um, I believe you mentioned in your speech like 90% of the incumbent companies are, are kind of content with the, the status quo of how, how they're operating, and these 10% um, of these disruptors, I suppose, they're, they're hungry and they're, they're going to gun for these ones. So if you, are, if you are kind of incumbent or if you are a disruptor, what kind of, what kind of steps can you, can you take to, to ensure that you're not going to get left behind in this new kind of movement? If you are in a market where you are the incumbent and, and you're making lots of money on your product, what is the incentive that you have to change? 
absolutely zero. So the, the only people with nothing to lose are the ones who create disruption. It's only those companies that they want to enter a new market. They want to displace the incumbents who have the, the uh, willingness and the incentives to, to create sustainable change. That doesn't mean that big companies with, you know, uh, cannot be disruptors. Yeah, they can, but they, they might cause disruption into another market. It can be an adjacent market. It can be using a competency that they have on one market to come up with something in another one. And they can cause disruption. Big companies can cause disruption, but not in their own market because they, in their incumbent market, they don't have any incentives to disrupt themselves. And um, you're, you're kind of um, probably an example of, of an incumbent that's moving into this kind of radical new market. The Climate Take Back Initiative, the kind of follow-up to, to Mission Zero, um, obviously you gave us an update on Mission Zero. This Climate Take Back thing, um, we've written about it before, and it was very much a beyond-borders approach to sustainability. It was, it was one of these sector changes. And in regards to announcing initiatives like that or just moving beyond, you know, making products for the sake of making products, how do you kind of mobilize uh, staff internally? How do you kind of get the whole company on board? What kind of conversations need to be had to, to drive that movement? Obviously, when you launch a new mission, you need to, first of all, make people aware. Then you need to create the capabilities to understand the issues that we're talking. So a lot of training. You need to engage because when you launch a new mission, it's not something that you have targets and you have a very exact path. It's really unknown, uncharted territory. And that's why you need to um, engage with the stakeholders to help you navigate through that path because you will never be able to do it on your own. So it's about having conversation externally, having conversation internally and letting the, the mission evolve itself and not being afraid to, to lose a bit of control. And you, you mentioned that the, the whole not being afraid thing. Um, one of the kind of, I suppose, buzz phrases that, that came up today was the kind of not being scared of, of tackling that elephant in the room, whether it's a kind of transport sector worrying about fuel consumption. You, you mentioned companies are, are scared to tackle the big issues. Uh, if I could just ask you firstly, why, why is there a reluctance to tackle these big issues? And also, how, how can companies go about really starting to tackle the core issues rather than dressing up CSR as a more kind of marketing thing or, or as a fluff thing, I suppose, would be the, uh, the relevant term? In many occasions, companies have a big elephant in the room, which everybody at the end knows about. And, you know, it's, but it's a hard pill to swallow. It took a while to, you know, for interface to understand that they are to accept that what makes carpet carpet, which is the fiber, was the biggest environmental issue. And, and every company would have this elephant in the room. It takes just a while to realize that uh, people know anyway. Uh, people would be asking questions and, and, and it's better to just accept it and, and think in ways through what you can navigate. And, and then the, the answers are quite easy uh, when, once you accept it. And then it might be some changes on your products, some changes on your business model, you know, and then you, you also can have more honest conversations internally and externally with, with, with people. Sometimes it's difficult, the, 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 the transition, but um, I think it's better to accept it. Uh, and and even, even if you are still hooked up to the old model, but you accept it and you have, you know, a, a path to the new model, uh, I think, you know, that could be credible in itself. 
And um, I'm worried that uh, people uh, are starting to pack the kind of showroom away and that you've got meetings to go to. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll stop this chat here. But uh, Ramon, thank you very much for, for agreeing to talk. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Well, there you have it. Uh, it turned out to be quite a good last minute um, invite from Ramon there. That. Um, okay, so now we move from carpet tiles to hotels and restaurants because, Matt, you managed to secure an interview with Whitbread, didn't you? Yeah, um, again, we've, we've, we've covered Whitbread in, in detail, but I, I've been talking to, um, to their PR and they were they were up for kind of talking about their what they've done in the past year in regards to sustainability. The only issue being we've kind of covered that in depth. Mm-hmm. We had Barry Edwards speaking at um, ED Live, yeah. talking strange enough about carpet tiles, about turning Costa coffee sacks into carpet tiles at Premier Inn, and a lot of the initiatives they wanted to go through. We've kind of covered in depth, but when a company like Whitbread offer you insight into one of their CSR directors, you, you don't say no, and it mm. gave us a good chance to kind of. Um, get an insight into how, how he does his job and give our give our um, listeners, you know, an aspect of, of how he's kind of implemented success there and what skills he's had to do along the way. Mm. Yeah, so we've, you mentioned, obviously, we had the Barry Ed- Edwards interview. He's their energy procurement manager, I think. Um, we've had Premier Inn installing rooftop solar systems. Um, and, of course, more recently, I suppose, the War on Waste programme. Um, we spoke with Costa's energy and environment manager, Ollie Rosevar, to find out what they're doing in the area of waste coffee cups so yeah well covered already um i did set you that task of seeing if you could come back with something a bit different then from this interview with james and obviously we've nicely gone down this skills route um and sustainability skills is a big focus area for us at ed now um we ran our inaugural sustainability skills workshop earlier this year looking to follow that up i think with a with another one as well it's very popular we had a skills interview with um PNG's head of sustainability, Virginie Helius, and that was episode three, I think. Um, and so now we're, we're moving on to Whitbread's James picture. So it'll be interesting to see how that follows on from the sustainability skills special we had with Virginia a few weeks ago. So Matt, set the scene for us. Where was this interview taking place? And- so again, this is uh, central London, uh, about nine minutes outside of Victoria Station. Um, Edelman PR's uh, head office, actually. Mm-hmm. They kind of sat me down in a little boardroom. Um, one of the PR people was frantically scribbling away in the corner, um, and it was a good chance for me and James just to just to chat about what he's done so far there, what he hopes for the future, and a big emphasis was on kind of communicating sustainability, especially you know Whitbread owns such a diverse portfolio mm. of, of, of companies and brands. How has he managed to kind of implement success in regards to sustainability across them, whilst not alienating certain departments and sectors? Mm. Well, let's see. Okay, so here's that interview with James Pitcher in full. I'm now here um, in central London. I've been invited up to the Edelman offices to speak to James Pitcher, um, CSR director of Whitbread. Um, he's kindly come along to the office today, and we're here just to chat about his role at Whitbread and, and what kind of skills he's developed um, during his time there. I've managed to negate most of the uh, train strikes um, so I'm here on time, and without further ado, I'll introduce you to James. So James, thank you very much for agreeing this. It's nice to meet you. Hi, very nice to meet you too. Just to give our listeners a kind of better idea and understanding of you and your role, if you could just give us a, a kind of general brief of, of you, how you got into your role, the, the kind of team you work for, I suppose, and, and if you have a typical day at, at kind of Whitbread, what, what does that day entail? Okay, well, that's great. Um, so I work for um, the hotel and restaurant brands within within Whitbread so that's Premier Inn and our restaurant brands like Brewers Fair, Beefeater the ones you typically find attached to a Premier Inn um, 
outside of some of the small towns in the UK. Um, we've got about 11 people in the CSR team in total and we report into the operations part of the business. So I work directly for the Chief Operating Officer of Premier Inn and I can come on later and explain why I think that's a really good place for CSR to be from a sort of bottom-up, um, building everything into the, the way the business works from a bottom-up perspective with the people that, that actually work in our hotels and restaurants. Um, how I arrived at Whitbread was um, through a number of different roles um, in environmental and climate change management with a number of different organisations. So I've worked in the FMCG sector, the public sector, um, most recently in retail and now in hospitality. Um, and the role at Whitbread really, um, what attracted me to the role at Whitbread was the, the breadth of the role. So I look after you know, my typical day, if you like, can go from a meeting at Great Ormond Street Hospital where we're building the Premier Inn Clinical Building um, where our team members are raising over £2 million a year. It's a fantastic um, programme that we have running across the business that really engages all the people that work in our hotels and restaurants. So a meeting with them, for example. I might have some one-to-ones with some of my direct reports who look after our energy and environment team, our responsible sourcing and supply chain work, um, our corporate responsibility um, function which looks after things like health and well-being, nutrition, so there might be a, a meeting in there with the um, British Hospitality Association on the sugar tax, for example. So it's always pretty varied, which is, which is why my role is so interesting. Um, but as I said, you know, we've got 11 people in the team, a lot of independent experts, um, and yeah, I really enjoy myself. And um, 11 people, I suppose, uh, for, for size of, a company the size of Whitbread might be slightly surprising. When you consider, you know, you covered, you know, corporate social uh, responsibility, like you said, it covers a lot of things. The health and well-being thing is something I'm certainly starting to pick up more on as I kind of develop uh, my understanding of it. Um, it almost sounds like you've got a, a lot of spinning plates. You've got to keep spinning, basically. Um, in terms of in terms of management of that, what kind of key key skills have you had to had to bring to the table and perhaps ask these external experts to bring in to to make sure that you're kind of not neglecting one area or making sure if there is an area to prioritise, yeah. you you go full steam ahead with that one. Yeah. Well, I think I think actually the team. So I think CSR and sustainability functions can act as that sort of conscience of the business, if you like, that social conscience of the business. And um, I think from that perspective, it's it's really important to have great relationships with other departments. So a lot of the time, the accountability for having a fantastic program on. Um, nutrition will reside within my team, but actually the responsibility for implementing that will very much will sit within our restaurants team. The accountability for driving an amazing um, skills and employment program, such like the one we have at Whitbread around apprenticeships and learning and development, giving giving the people that work within our hotels and restaurants amazing qualifications and careers. Again, the accountability for having a program like that might sit within CSR, but the responsibility for its implementation is in the um, in the HR team. So actually, it's a lot of the time it's about navigating. It's creating great relationships across the business, navigating those effectively to get our work done. That's why I think a small number of people can be really effective. In terms of my personal skills, I think there are sort of four things that I've been, I've been working on in my career and I really call upon within my current role as, as director. I think the first thing is um, the ability to really think strategically and be able to translate the strategy and the vision that we've got into action. So strategies and visions can be quite theoretical um, and and actually helping me helping my team to navigate those so they can really align their work you know if I'm doing this piece of work on recycling for example how does that link into the bigger picture Um, and actually doing that really effectively and being able to communicate that effectively to my team is really important the second thing that I've learned from being with a number of different organizations is 
always being aware of and understanding the business and the external environment. So actually what's going on commercially in the business, that could affect what we do. Um, you know, the work that we do isn't always philanthropic. It's got to have value from a perspective of it might be security of supply. It might be from a license to operate perspective. We might do something to save the business money. But actually really effectively kind of navigating or linking what our strategy is looking to achieve with what the business is looking to achieve from a commercial perspective just really helps to get cut through at senior level and things like that. Um, And the last two things which are really based around sort of the management of people, if you like, Um, one of them is holding people to account. So I've had a post-it note on my desk for for years, which is all about judging when to intervene. So actually, um, the post-it note says when to drive and when to delegate. And that's something I consciously think about whenever a piece of work arrives on my desk or I get an email into my inbox is actually, is this something that I need to drive as the leader of this team? Or is this something I need to delegate um, to my team members? Because they might be the expert in that area. I'm not the expert in every area. Um, I have a, you know, um, something that I like to do, which is hiring people that are better than you at <laughs> doing individual jobs within the team. So actually, I think it's really effective to delegate out to the experts within the team, but actually being able to recognise when they're under pressure or when they've just got too much on or whether, you know, the work is of enough importance for me to do myself. Um, but actually, I'm a real kind of believer in hiring great talented people within the team setting the framework within which they can operate and then just allowing them to have a go because that's how I think people really develop it's making them making them sort of understand that they can they can take risks and actually there isn't going to be any sort of you know recompense if if that if something doesn't go so well and actually we can we can we can work through that and actually that's the way that you truly innovate within a brand you mentioned the kind of choosing to delegate and and drive I suppose uh, switching the words around when you choose to drive your staff by by giving them these these tasks how does the kind of communication differ there perhaps when you're having to like you said um highlight the commercial aspect of of an initiative are you are you having to kind of almost talk different languages to to your your team compared to external external kind of departments and how how does that how do you approach those conversations with different people well i think i think I think the majority of sustainability teams um, have a sort of an inherent interest in doing the right thing, whether that's for the environment or whether that's within the supply chain, um, whether that's you know raising money for a charity. But obviously, boards of directors and ex-co's and exec committees are obviously um, have a number of different things to worry about. Well, sustainability is only just one of those. So actually, I think it is around speaking the right language first and foremost when you go into the boardroom. Um, so I've always had a mantra that you know you can talk about um, uh, energy management in such a way that. You, you know from your sustainability perspective that you're doing the right thing in terms of reducing the energy impact of the business to help mitigate the impacts of climate change. But you'd never say that within the boardroom. You would say, we're doing this because it makes our business a leaner operation. We save this. The ROI is this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I just think it's almost modifying the way that you say it to sort of achieve the same outcome. Um, but I do think actually within, within Whitbread, particularly as a brand, you know, Corporate social responsibility and sustainability is is at the heart of what we do. So we have a customer heartbeat model, um, and on that model, which is up in our boardroom on the wall, um, our program, Good Together, our CSR program, is on there, and the words force for good, and generally within the business there is a concept of we just need to do the right thing. Um, And that's something that I've heard more often within this business than other businesses I've worked out. 
for example, which is um, actually being questioned on what's the right thing to do. Um, so I think there's, there's a bit of both within my current role. Um, but I think the most important area that, that our exec teams are most interested in is sort of what, the, what are the main sort of consumer trends of interest? What are the future trends coming at the business that could hit the business and either um, impact our reputation or what are the future trends that could be a real opportunity for the business commercially? Um, and, and actually being able to navigate those and keep those really to the forefront of our strategy is really important. And, um, and how do you kind of navigate those? I suppose um, when, when you're managing kind of corporate responsibility, you've got so many goals and initiatives that right now you're, you're trying to hit. And especially across a kind of diverse portfolio like Whitbread, how do you then kind of keep your eye on, on not necessarily the ball, but on what's on the horizon, what trends you will need to account for in a few years? Well, I think um, a couple of, we're doing a couple of pieces of work at the moment, actually, on materiality. Um, which is, which I think is really important, which is really just making sure that we are um, looking at the areas where we believe that we can have the biggest collective impact as brands, but also remaining aware of what trends are coming over the horizon and being in a great position to react to those. And I think that's generally as a reaction of you know, the relationship between brands and, and consumers is changing. And people now tend to buy from brands that trust and uh, they trust and, and that embody the values that they, that they see that they see as um, important. I think particularly within the hotel industry, you're not necessarily going to get an individual staying within a Premier Inn because we're better at recycling than the Holiday Inn down the road. Generally, people choose a hotel based on quality of service, the price and the location of that hotel. But actually, what I liked, what I try and like to do with our sustainability strategy is almost complement the great things that Premier Inn offers its guests already. So when you've got a guest coming down in the morning where they've had a great night's sleep, had a fantastic hot shower, the team members have been amazing to them since the moment they walked through the door, they've had a fantastic breakfast, and they leave and they walk across the car park and they look back and see the solar panels all over the roof and they think that's nice what a great brand i think that's really that's really kind of an appropriate position for for our for our sustainability strategy at the moment to really complement what our brand's all about and that's why i do think it is you know at the heart of what we do and our board certainly recognize that so it's it's almost a case of you're, you're not necessarily selling your 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 consumers your customers the sustainability message you're just using it to, to complement the things that they're, they're more interested in? Well, I think there'll be some things that will kind of be more above the line than others in terms of how we communicate to our guests. So, um, you know, we've got messaging in the rooms around what we'd like to do with recycling, what we'd like to do with saving energy and saving water and so on and so forth. Um, and there's and then there's the more sort of below the line piece. But I think what we recognise is actually that consumers are interested. So we've got all the information out there. So we're really transparent. We do great CSR reports each year. Um, we do a lot of interviews like this and we like to get our, our names and our projects out there into the media so people can see what we're doing um, because we're very proud of that. But actually, we know that, that you know, whether it changes consumer habits or not, um, we, it, it's, probably, it's probably not as, um, not, it's, that's not a very certain sort of concept at the moment. I think that consumers tend to buy from brands that they trust and brands with a great sustainability strategy um, and do the things that we do will tend to embody that trust. And um, on on the topic of hotels, every every time I've uh, stayed at one, I think the one the one thing I notice is always the kind of the towels, the towels on the leave them on the uh, bathroom floor to to be cleaned or, or hang back up to to save on the water. Um, and I've just assumed from that point that that must be um, a hotel chain's biggest environmental and social side they have to manage is their water use for for Whitbread and Premier Inn across across Premier Inn to to begin with before we move on to kind of beef eater etc. 
what's the kind of um, biggest task that you, you're currently looking at and thinking this is something we, we need to address and how, how are you kind of mobilising your staff to do so? Specifically with regards to the environment? Um, I, would say, I would say environment and sustainability in general, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think focusing on the environment, the environmental piece first, I think water consumption is, is really important within the hotel. You know, hotels consume a lot of water, but it might not be the, the number one. I think the number one within, within our hotels is, is our energy consumption from an environmental perspective. I think, but, that's, but that doesn't mean that the water usage isn't important and the recycling from our bedrooms isn't important and the food waste from our kitchens and all of those things. Um, and we do try and create, we do try and keep everything um, as to do with energy and environmental management as real business as usual activities within the business. This is why I think um, the CSR, my CSR team's position in our operations function is so important. I think that bottom-up approach that we can take, where we can get our team members really engaged with this, we're doing a huge amount of work on engagement on energy saving at the moment within our hotels. Uh, we launched an amazing competition last year where we incentivised hotels to save energy and we saw some great uptake from that. And I think that's really where we can have um, the biggest collective impact is with the people that work within our brands. Um, so I think I think generally um, within the environmental area, those are the kind of the, the big the big three, which is energy consumption, water usage, and and recycling. Um, I think more generally than that, from a from sort of materiality level at the top level of the business, our ability to. Um, hire great people, give people fantastic access to work, um, our, our, our position as a UK UK employer and give people amazing careers where they can join Whitbread with little or no qualifications and manage their own hotel within a few years. Um, the 5,000 apprenticeships that we're going to have um, completed by 2020, all of those things I think um, as, a, as a business which where, where people are, are our differentiator as a brand. Um, I think that's that's the most important area for us to focus on from a sustainability perspective. Okay, and um, the same question goes to the kind of um, beef eater um, kind of approach as well, the big biggest challenge, and and how you're kind of mobilising the solution. So, from a restaurant's perspective, again, um, I think the people piece comes to the forefront. So, again. I think at the, at the top level, sort of sustainability level, the most material impact that we have as an organisation is, is on is on people and the access to work that we can give to people within the UK. Um, I think there are some there are some differences within those brands that that come from the nature um, of the business that they do as food businesses. We've got to be really careful with um, how we source the products that then get served to our to our customers, but also the um, the nutritional makeup of the dishes that we have and those are things that probably bubble up to the surface a little bit more than they would say in Premier Inn um, that's not to say that the food in Premier Inn isn't important but it's probably a bit more prevalent when you've got a brand with beef in the title for example so we've got a really ambitious um, responsible sourcing program within within Whitbread um, we are um, going to have all of our critical commodities beef is one for example um, accredited to robust international standards by 2020 um, and that's something that we're really we're really proud of as a really ambitious program from a, um, a sourcing perspective um, by the end of this year we, we um, plan to have all of the fish that we use within the business accredited to the MSC standard or a similar um, uh, international internationally recognised standard and that's something that we're really keen on so I think that's something that's probably a bit more relevant within the restaurant brands because they are food businesses is that provenance of, of where things come from and, and, and how we go about doing the sourcing in those areas and um, we had uh, we had Barry Edwards from from Whitbread come and speak to uh, delegates at EG Live for for us earlier this year. Um, he was I think he was mainly talking about energy management, but I, I managed to grab a chat with him beforehand, 
And I think one of the interesting things I found was how he was saying that there are potential solutions from one brand to another. So he mentioned, for instance, how Costa coffee sacks were being used for carpets in, in Premier Inn. Um, as, as someone who is kind of almost managing a portfolio of different brands in different sectors, uh, how, how much does innovation where pulling perhaps a waste issue from one thing to uh, apply for like a, a raw material in the other, how, how does that kind of conversation go about? Uh, are, you, are you having to, again, kind of talk different languages to different people? Um, it, I imagine it would be quite a confusing thing to, to get off the ground in general. Well, I think, um, I think we, are, we are innovative businesses already within, and I think that really helps. I think that culture of innovation is something that, that Whitbread, Whitbread has across Premier Inn and Costa. And I think within the teams, it's really important to make sure that we're managing the issues that we've got really well today and doing that kind of day-to-day management, but also thinking about, okay, what are we going to do over the next one, two, five years or so. So every single area of our team from energy and environment to the supply chain has a five-year roadmap of activity. So the five-year roadmap of activity is something that helps us generate our business plan each year and our business plan within CSR are the projects that we do. Now, obviously, the further out in that business plan you get, the more blue sky the solutions that we start to look at. So it is something that we really try and work on, um, mainly in conjunction with a number of our partners that we work with. So a lot of our um, our waste and recycling work we work on with our with our main partner there to try and understand okay if we've got a certain uh, particular type of waste going through our um, through our sort of waste system if you like can we can we dispose of that a different way can we reuse that can we start to move that move that waste back to um, our suppliers so a good example of something that we're we're looking at doing in this in progress at the moment is mushroom crates so we have an enormous number of mushroom crates that come through the premier and brands um, for the mushrooms in our breakfast every every year and actually we're starting to have a think about okay how can we start to use those how can we start to recycle those crates back into the system so that they go back to the supplier to then sort of send new mushrooms again back through so you know those type of things is is, is just really it's part of what we do um, there are day-to-day things that we need to manage really well, but I'm really keen that the team have that kind of future-looking strategy for each of their areas where they're looking at sort of what solutions are going to be in three, four years' time. And you, you mentioned, um, you know, you, you, you've got to, to manage the goals and whatnot. In terms of, in terms of goal-setting and you mentioned earlier on, like, you know, accountability, how, how do you go about um, I, I'm measuring success, not just like hitting hitting targets as well, but differing from kind of beef eater to, to premier in how how do these kind of conversations go where you perhaps you know is it all kind of under one kind of firmware? where okay we need to do concentrate on waste across the board or if not how are you then kind of delegating these expertise out to the right areas if you understand what yeah. i mean yeah so i think i think i think i think for me that comes back to prioritization of activity um, and there are just a number of things that we need to do really, really well within our sustainability strategy. They're what I call our sort of brilliant basics, if you like. They're the business as usual activities that any large corporate should be doing really well. Um, and those are the things like the energy and environmental management. Um, they're the things like the charitable giving and so on. They're just, just the things that we should we should all be doing, I, I think, anyway, as, as, as businesses. There are then some things that we probably need to be on the front foot for, where you really just need to step those up, and they tend to be the areas of highest risk to your brands. Um, so they tend to they can they can have more priority um, in terms of sort of when things emerge during the year or issues crop up. Um, and then there are the then there's the sort of 
I don't know, it might be the one thing that a brand can be really famous for. And as I said previously, I think that's that's really to do with our people. You know, we've got an amazing culture within Whitbread. Um, we really want that culture to bleed throughout everything that we do from our communities that we serve, the team members that we have, to the people in our supply chain. That's something we're really keen to try and achieve. Um, so I think I tend to prioritise in, 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 in that way. I think the targets that we have as a business are holistic. They're group-level targets. They're, they're, they cover all of the main sort of areas that our strategy does. Um, and they're treated generally with equal importance. Um, and I think that's, that's how we tend to divide, divide the work up within the brands. Is where can we have the biggest impact? What are the areas that we can go at first? What are the most material things that we really need to manage within our hotel and restaurants businesses? And the team's work tends to get allocated on that basis. And um, again, I suppose with the with the kind of target settings, um, a lot of a lot of our listeners and and readers, I think, would would have, would say that their um, their biggest challenge, I suppose, is face is kind of internal behaviour change. You mentioned earlier on how how you're kind of addressing consumer behaviour change yep. with with the kind of stuff in and around. We uh, we launched our ED Leaders Club recently. We got everyone to kind of sign their name on a badge and put the the kind of big challenge they're dealing with mm. and behaviour behaviour change or people kind of cropped up you mentioned earlier your kind of operational approach had had really mobilized team efforts um for anyone listening who perhaps doesn't have the kind of holistic or approach or sustainability perhaps isn't quite at the heart of their company how how would you kind of incentivize behavior change perhaps in a less uh, enabled environment so when i joined the business um over a year ago now um I came into a business that already had um, something that I've been looking for for a while, which was a sustainability metric on its balance scorecard, its KPIs, um, and it was around carbon reduction. And actually, um, I thought that was a great thing. Um, but when I went out into the estate and started talking to members of our operational teams, they didn't really know what it was. They didn't know what it meant. It was a certain colour, red, amber, green, but they didn't really know why. And that was something that we that we really started with. Um, and starting from that basis, we decided, well, actually, what are the things that we can do from an engagement perspective that will really drive a benefit for the business, both in terms of the sustainability benefits, in terms of the carbon target we've set, but also it will save the business money if you manage utilities really well. And we hit on um, energy. So last year we ran a, um, an engagement competition, which is really where we uh, launched some very simple information out to, out to teams. And I think that's really important. The first thing I say is just be really simple in how you communicate. Um, so we really linked what we do in terms of managing energy in hotels to what people do at home. You, know, you leave a bedroom at home, you might, you'll probably turn the light off. So why don't we do the same thing within the hotels and tell the team members to do that? Um, the second thing that we that we realised really galvanised people was was competition. So people love being put into league tables, and if they're put into a league table, they really generally want to be towards the top of that league table. Um, so that was really important. So we started to um, put the individual groups of hotels into a league table, so that the um, the teams could compete with each other to see how much energy they could save. Number three was to start off with to really start to get it um, ingrained within. Uh, within the business we decided to incentivize it so we just gave very small prizes cash prizes to a team's social fund so in a way of saying thank you for saving energy here's some money where you can go out as a team and enjoy yourselves to celebrate what you've done 
that was something that's been quite short term, and I'll come on to come on to why that is in in a, in a minute. But um, the fourth thing was, and the really crucially important, is you've got to tell people how they're doing. So you've got to, if you are going to engage, if you are going to launch an engagement competition, whether it's incentivized or not, or league tables, you've got to tell people how they're doing to maintain that interest, and you've got to celebrate success when it happens. So I was really keen to get out to the winning sites, to take tweets, selfies with the teams, you know, those type of things. We had massive comedy checks where we'd give them to the winning sites, and then they they start shouting about it on Twitter and using so, um, other social social media to try and push what they were doing. Um, and that was really year one. Year two of the programme is now really trying to embed that into just how we do business rather than it being seen as a bit of an add-on, a bit of a competition, a bit of something fun that's additional to day job. Now really centralising energy management into just it's how you run a hotel and it's part of what you do when, when you work for Premier Inn is, is you try and save energy. Um, and actually, the way that we've done that is we've changed the metric that we apply to not no longer be linked to carbon, which no one understands, but to be linked to the utility bill for the site. Everyone gets a utility bill at home. We all know what one looks like. We all hate receiving them through the post when they arrive. Um, and actually giving them really pounds and pence utility bill to manage and giving them um, just a bit of knowledge around what the impact of that looks like. So um, if you save X amount on your utility bill, it's the same as selling this number of bedrooms or this many breakfasts and things like that, just so it's really tangible for people to be able to understand. Um, and I think that's the thing with engagement, is you might need to give it a bit of a kick to get it off the ground, and that might be through competitions and, and, and prize money and things. But then ultimately you've just got to centralise into how, how, how you do business and actually making energy management less seen as an add-on but more seen as a this is just a business as usual, business as usual activity. This is the same as, uh, you know, making sure that um, you're running your business really well actually part of that is the is the energy consumption so it's been a really successful program we've seen some really great um, reactions within our team members and um, I suppose in that case then uh, my, my kind of final question would be you kind of you've managed to you managed to mobilize the uh, the staff you've you've got a, a board that is kind of you know is, is almost really leading this kind of sustainability push within within the private sector um, in, in terms of skills that you managed to develop, what, what else do you see uh, perhaps almost a, this is what I need to do in the future to really get the, get, get the company over the next kind of milestone type thing? Is there any kind of um, initiatives or, or just kind of um, communications you feel internally you need to have for the future? So I think, um, I think as, as our, we're, we're a really rapidly growing business and, that, and as our business grows, I think it's really important that we... Um, keep sustainability at the forefront of everything we do. Um, it was really pleasing to see last year that you know we we opened a number of a number of new hotels across the UK, but we also expanded the amount of solar power that we generate by um, we doubled the amount of solar power that we generate with with panels on our roof. So I think it's really important that we we continue that trend. I think in terms of how I communicate, I think what what I tend to do now is when I'm going into um, an exec committee or a boardroom. Um, I like to try and be the agitator because so often that, you know, as I said, exec committees have so many things to, to worry about and so many different um, things keep competing for priority that actually sustainability, you know, can sometimes struggle to have its voice heard. So I like to go in and really be the agitator in those sessions and kind of bring the business back to, you know, this is just part of how we do business. This isn't an optional extra. We just need to continue to do this as a brand because people will really respect um and value the the Premier Inn and our restaurant brands if we do the right thing. Um, so I think that's something that I'm really conscious of doing. And lastly, I think you know a couple of things are 
it's really important to communicate things really simply with sustainability. There's a hell of a lot of jargon. There's an awful amount of um, technical language. And actually, when I, whenever I go in to speak to the people making the decisions, you've got to keep it as simple as possible. Otherwise, you'll lose people. And lastly, I think it's linking um, the trends that are coming um, uh, over the horizon over the next sort of three to five years and just making making them really aware of those and making them aware that we need to react to these from a it might be to mitigate some risk but it might be to, to protect our brand reputation and actually when you get to be the leading hotel brand within the UK you know obviously it's really important to maintain that um, from a brand perspective and actually managing the things that we look after in the CSR team really well can help us do that. James I, I think that's about um, all we've got time for today but you've um, you've been a, a really really interesting kind of person to chat to and again uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Great stuff really interesting to hear how um, so much of what James Pitcher said there chimed so well with what Virginia Helias from P&G had to say and that sustainability skills space. Um, we hope that's useful to all sustainability professionals out there, regardless of where you are on the, uh, your career ladder at the moment. Anyway, we have um, five or ten minutes left now for this episode of Sustainable Business Covered, and that gives us time to end with a couple of uh, regular features. So let's, this time around, let's go to you, George. Um, first of all, have you found this podcast useful in terms of catching up on the past couple of weeks? Oh, certainly. Um, some of Matt's points have been very enlightening then. Uh... And, and so on mine as well have been quite enlightening as well, haven't they? Yeah. Uh, moving on. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so I'm hoping you've been sat there anyway, uh, drawing up your sustainability success story. Um, hopefully you've picked out a, a success story, which hopefully leaves us all feeling a bit more positive about the way some businesses are really embracing the green economy now. What have you got? Mm. Um, so this week it's all about renewable energy and how renewable energy is acting as a uh, pos- positive impact on the UK energy mix. Mm-hmm. So I think um, earlier this week it was announced that um, Scotland had uh, generated the equivalent of all of its electricity through wind turbines, which is very impressive. I think it's the first time it's happened this year. I'm not sure. But just for one day? Or just for, for one day. Okay. This, was, this happened on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is it's sort of like reflecting on how uh, like renewable energy sources are emerging as a dominant means of generating electricity in the UK. I think while I was away, was it, there was a story that came out that um, government statistics revealed that um, renewable energy sources have actually overtaken coal as, mm-hmm. uh, do, as the uh, dominant energy source. So, mm. um, Interesting, yeah, there was, there was um, reminds me, I was at a, a BITC event a few weeks ago actually, and at that event Mike Barry from MS was giving a presentation on say a few weeks ago, it was a couple of months ago now, he was given a presentation, uh, he kind of started talking about that renewable energy mix and he mentioned how a week previous, I think all of the UK received no power from coal for, I think, for a, a day. And then it was interesting because as he was giving that presentation, someone had an app on their phone which shows where the balance of electricity is coming from and it dropped to zero again like, while he was giving that presentation. It was the second day. So we're kind of starting to see it now happening more and more where as well as the rising numbers of renewable energy in the mix, um, we're also conversely seeing a decline in in coal power generation. Mm. It's um, having a uh, tangible effect as well, because I think also um, Scotland, are they the, low, the second lowest uh, emissions contributor in Europe, mm. behind Sweden? So mm. it does, it does show yeah, there's so many stats and countries and places, Chernobyl, Antarctica, all these different places now generating... Uh, Renewables. So uh, yeah, there's there's quite a quite a Chernobyl not yet in in the pipeline. Yeah, in the pipeline. But 
Yeah, fascinating development. Okay, mm. so um, last stop on the podcast then. Matt, it's um, your time to shine with the innovation zone. Um, ED regulars among you will know that Matt writes a regular feature for us on the best green innovations of the week. So Matt, hopefully you've picked out one or two of those green innovations that, green innovations that you think stand out. Yeah, um, this this week was a, was an interesting one in that I was kind of wanting to tailor tailor the innovations to something that would help with kind of natural resources. I mean, we've had world overshoot day this week and um that's obviously it's happened five five days earlier than last year it's kind of the the deadline for an approach is kind of pushing and that kind of nicely fell in with the rio olympics so the awareness is rising unfortunately the actual innovations i found weren't necessarily geared to that mm. um there was an interesting one about mushroom burial suits which i won't go into too much detail with but uh that's quite an interesting read about how even after death we're still kind of uh harming harming the planet and this is a new kind of way to biodegrade the body at an accelerated rate without releasing nasty toxins nice but um <laughs> the one that really got me was kind of these uh these new bricks that have been developed by newcastle university and uh uwe bristol mm-hmm. um still developmental stages but they've got like a three point something billion pound backing um and it's basically these smart bricks that kind of mimic a, a cow's stomach obviously cows have kind of four cycles and, and therefore uh for stomachs mm-hmm. and they kind of insert these bricks with empty chambers and these chambers will have microorganisms and microfilms sitting in there mm-hmm. which then absorb solar um, heat they absorb air pollution and they absorb wastewater use and then literally and then the microorganisms within the brick will then go to work and find new purposes so the solar heat will get trapped transferred into electricity the uh, toxins come in there will um, just store in there so it kind of purifies the air it's all this kind of creating this almost breathable smart building of the future. Hmm, that sounds really interesting. Mm. Um, and actually why you said that I noted down biomimicry, because I think that's an area that I'm hearing a lot more, I'm hearing the word come up a lot more. Um, sustainability professionals are starting to get to grips with it and realise that it's a potential way forward in the kind of low-carbon, more resource-efficient ways of doing business. So maybe that would be a good uh, idea for a future podcast episode <laughs> sort of um yeah sort of thinking aloud here but maybe we could get someone like forum for the future on board because i know they do quite a bit of work in this area james goodman i think um might be interesting to have a chat and see what other developments are happening around that kind mm-hmm. of biomimic area okay so um great well there you have it that just about wraps up this week's episode of sustainable business covered we hope you enjoyed it thanks again to you both matt and george um matt you are now off for an extended weekend aren't you Yep, um, Quest of Pokemon's taken me north of the border, off to Scotland. <laughs> oh, it's not it's not Pokemon, it's, uh, it's Fringe Festival, which I am very much looking forward to. Okay, you're going to be looking at the sustainability credentials of Edinburgh. Festival. Of course, yeah. it's the only reason I'm going. Uh, yeah. Report back on my desk on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, um, we will be back next week. It'd be nice to kind of reinstigate that kind of weekly format. We'll be back here next week. Um, and for once, I do have an idea or a couple of ideas as to what will be on the next episode. I've got interviews arranged with Doddle, the parcel collection and delivery service. Um, we'll be discussing new business models, disruptive innovation, be a nice kind of move on from when we discussed that with Nimba. And then I'll be visiting the Sustainable Restaurant Association for an interview with their new chief executive. And I'm sure we'll have time for the usual sustainability success story and the innovation of the week. Finally, it's worth reminding you all that this podcast is now available on iTunes. Just search for Sustainable Business Covered and you are still able to download them all directly from the ed.net website and listen to them all for free. Anyway, until next time, it's a goodbye from George. Goodbye. Goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And goodbye from myself. Goodbye. Goodbye.